Our second scripture reading is from the book of Revelation, chapters 7 and 21. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city near Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The word of the Lord. Well, a very good morning to you. Your esteemed leader is in Nepal right now, so you have me this morning. It's great to be with you again. Now, there are many good reasons to come to church, are there not? To see your friends, to enjoy coffee and donuts, great music, marvel at Corky's shoes. I just love those shoes every time I see them. But one of the main reasons we come to church is really to reorientate ourselves around the story of Scripture. And stories are, I think, extremely important. They are a way in which we as human beings orientate our lives. Stories, the stories we tell ourselves, can lead us to war or they can send us to Mars. Stories really matter. It really matters to know what story you're in. And in particular, how a story begins and how a story ends makes all the difference. So I was thinking about uh, a film that I particularly love, Apollo 13. Have you seen Apollo 13? Great film. Do you remember the story? Basically, it's a story, an extraordinary rescue story. So one of the moon missions goes badly wrong, and NASA has to find a way to bring three astronauts back, using technology far less sophisticated than the mobile phones that you have. It's an extraordinary story. But it depends on how you see that, how you see that story, depends on how you understand the beginning and the end. If 
It's a story about human exploration, the expansion of our minds, the human spirit exploring our place in the universe, then its failure is a tragedy, isn't it? If that story fails, if the rocket fails, then it's a tragedy. But if it's a story about the development of rocket technology to control the world, then its failure might be an example of tragic ego. So understanding the beginning and the ending of the story is incredibly important. And we've been spending time as a church thinking about mission and the mission of the church. And it's really important to grapple with the beginning and the end of the story when you think about mission, because the mission is the bit in the middle. We're in the bit in the middle. So understanding how the story begins and how the story ends really matters. And Johnny has spent time with you thinking about the beginning of the story, Genesis, thinking about how Genesis sets the trajectory for the rest of the story of Scripture. You thought about anthropology, what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. You thought about authority, where do we get the ideas from? Who's in, I mean, who, where, where does this idea of humanity come from? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? That sets the trajectory of the story. And then today, we're going to think a little bit about the end of the story. And I wonder, when you think about the end of the story of the gospel, of the Scriptures, I wonder what you really hope for. What is your hoped-for end? And I want to look at that this morning and suggest two slightly simplified, if you will, possible answers. One hoped-for end, and can we have the picture? I had a beautiful picture of the globe. I don't know if we have that. There's our earth. Isn't it beautiful? One possible end of the story is that we escape. We know that that world is a broken world, it's a messy world, it's not all that it should be, and so perhaps the end of the Christian story is that we kind of blast off from the earth and we finally escape to heaven. That's a possible ending of the story. Or another possible ending of the story is entirely the reverse. Another possible ending of the story is that actually it is about heaven coming to earth. Like Apollo 13, it's really a story of return. And how and which of those two endings Scripture points to fundamentally will affect how you see mission and what you think your mission and your life as a church, as individual Christians, is all about. It changes what you hope for, and what you hope for will determine how you live your life. So we pray, and then we're going to have a look and see if we can figure out from the Scriptures which of those two possible endings is what Scripture points to. Would you pray with me? So, Father God, this morning we pray, as always, that it would be your voice that speaks loudest. Lord, it's your word we want to hear this morning. It is your voice speaking to our hearts that we long for, because we know that nothing else will satisfy. So help us this morning. Speak to us by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
So about 10 years ago, I came to the United States for the first time. I came as part of a church plant, and after looking around for a while, we found a home to live in. We literally came without a house, nowhere to go, and it took us about two weeks to find a home. And then eventually, we found a townhouse, a little group of four townhouses, and we didn't know the neighbors, but we managed to find this place, a very nice little house, and we moved in. We, what we didn't know is that as we moved in, our next-door neighbor had found out that new neighbors were arriving. And what they tended to do, these neighbors, what they wanted to do was present us as a sort of welcoming present with a bottle of wine. And then they heard that I was a religious person. And they were thrown into confusion. Maybe he doesn't drink. We don't know. Meanwhile, as they were worrying about whether they should present us with a bottle of wine, we were unpacking, unpacking our wine. But we didn't have a corkscrew. We couldn't find it. So the first encounter with our neighbors, we went around and did, I'm so sorry, we are new your new neighbors, and we have you got a corkscrew. And that was the beginning of a friendship that has lasted until today. For 10 years, we've remained really good friends. Now, neither of them were churchgoers, and his wife was of Jewish origin, perhaps not a practicing Jew, but we used to have supper, and occasionally spiritual things would come up, and we would talk about, you know, church and those sorts of things. And one day, she said something to me that really kind of went, ouch. It was like one of those things that people say about Christians and the church, and it just kind of hit me. And she said, Matt, you know, I, I, I get it, I get it, you, you're a Christian and all this kind of stuff. He said, no, I, I, I'm, I'm from a Jewish origin, you know, and I actually, I prefer my faith. Because she said, my faith is about today and now and the earth. And your faith, it's all about some future heaven. Ouch. Is that right? And as I thought about what she said, I thought, well, I understand why she said it. Because a lot of the popular Christian imagination is obsessed with heaven. There are large parts of the church that are really interested in the rapture, that one day we will be whisked out of this awful earth and we will go to heaven. There are many popular books about experiences of heaven. Heaven is for real. Have you heard of that book? A little boy who said that he had an experience of heaven. So there's a lot in the popular Christian imagination that would affirm what she said, that basically the Christian imagination is caught up with this idea of escape but this morning, we read from the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, we read something that perhaps questions this idea of Armageddon. Armageddon out of here. <laughs> I want to acknowledge a couple of things as we look at this scripture. Yes, we see through a dark, uh, glass darkly. We're talking about strong rumors. We're not talking about absolute certainties. The book of Revelation is a very difficult book. Martin Luther, you remember him? We're celebrating his 500th anniversary. He thought the book of Revelation shouldn't even be in the canon of Scripture. Take it out. The book of Revelation was written not so much as a prophecy of the future. It was written for the time, probably by um, the disciple John in exile on the island of Patmos. And he's writing really for a church that's beginning to experience persecution. Trouble. 
And the real message that goes throughout the book of Revelation is God is in control. It's okay. That's really what the book of Revelation is about. It's a piece of apocalyptic literature, really difficult to understand, full of strange symbols, beasts, dragons, harlots, and horsemen. It's a very difficult book. Frankly, it's a bit weird. So we're going to have to hold what is, we read in this morning in the book of Revelation against the rest of Scripture. That's always what you do. When you find something that is difficult to understand, you try to hold it against the rest of the Scripture, the rest of the story, and say, does this fit the picture? So that's what we're going to try to do this morning. This is what we read about what we should hope for from the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place, where God is, is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. What's the first thing that strikes you about that? It's all about something coming down. The arrows in the Scripture do not point up, away. They point down towards It's actually characteristic of Jewish hope that God's presence would be with us on earth. And it's something that we as Christians rehearse every single week when we say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And let's pick up a couple of things out of that text. A new heaven and a new earth. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? What do you mean new? What does new mean? Well, there are two words in Greek that can be used to describe something new. The first word is neo, and that is used to describe something new in time. If you build a new house from scratch, that is a neo house. Once it had been neoed, it can never be neo again, because now it exists. So if you add to it or restore it or help it to be something other, that's not neo. That is kainos. Kainos is another word used for new, and it describes something that is being qualitatively new or renewed. And the word used here for new heaven and new earth is not neo, but kainos. Now, a little while ago, my uh, wife and I uh, were going to Ikea, and I felt that in our house, we didn't have enough chairs. So I said, well, darling, could we buy uh, a couple more chairs, neo chairs, new ones? And she said, absolutely not. No, 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 no. We're not going to buy any, spend any more money on chairs. We've got plenty of chairs in the house. So I went around um, Ikea in a bit of a huff, And then a couple of days later, I was walking back to my house, and I saw outside a neighbor's house these two rather nice-looking chairs that were obviously being thrown away. And I thought, aha, I was right. We do need some new chairs. (laughs) 
So I took these chairs. One of them was split and broken. They were both rather badly painted and rocky. And I thought, I'm going to canos these two chairs. I'm going to renew them. I've never done it before. I did an extremely bad job. I bought the wrong paint or the wrong varnish. I had to put about six coats of this bad paint. It was too thin. But I persevered. I was not going to give in. I bought a steel plate, and I glued it, and I screwed it back together. I canosed. I renewed that chair. Now they look rather good, and they sit in our living room. The question is, what is God doing with that blue ball that's now disappeared? Can we bring it back up? What is God doing with our earth? When Revelation speaks about a new heaven and a new earth, is it saying that it is going to be something completely disconnected with earth today, that it will have no connection whatsoever? Or is it saying that it is a renewed heaven and earth? In other words, there is some sense of continuity with that. And it seems to have something of both. There is some sense of continuity and there is some sense of discontinuity. For example, in this renewed, this chaos heaven and earth, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. So there is something very different in view. And interestingly, one thing has gone. The temple will no longer be there. There will be no temple. An extraordinary thing for a Jewish, largely Jewish audience to wrestle with because the temple was the center of worship. It was the center of everything to do with God. But I did not see a temple in the city, says John, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So there is this sense that this renewed, this chaos earth is something very different to anything we can possibly imagine or experience. But there is also a sense of continuity because the nations will walk by the light that is in God and the Lamb. The nations. Does that mean there will still be nations in this renewed heaven and earth? And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. It sounds like there's a city there. There are nations and kings. Sorry about that. I know you have an issue with kings. And perhaps you shouldn't take it too literally, but it sounds like there are authorities, there are nationalities, there is some sense of continuity with what we experience now. And the other image of a newness which is being used here in this scripture is a surprising one. The other image of newness that is seen in this extraordinary revelation is marriage. The metaphor that John uses here for its new reality is a marriage of heaven and earth. Earlier in the uh, the letter of this book of Revelation, John says this, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. 
God is going to reign where? Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And then we heard what we read this morning, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So it seems that the biblical view of what we should hope for, and which would therefore form our mission, is something like a marriage of heaven and earth. It is a renewed or new heaven and earth. It's not ultimately the hope of escape to heaven, but the hope of heaven coming to earth, however that looks. Now you might say, well, Matt, okay, okay, hang on a minute here. Are you sure? I mean, this is John on an island in Patmos in exile. Perhaps we shouldn't take this strange book of Revelation too literally. Why don't we listen to somebody a bit more sensible? What about Paul? The Apostle Paul. What did the Apostle Paul hope for? What did he point to in terms of his expectation of the end of the story? Did Paul hope for heaven? Well, Paul certainly believed in the reality of heaven. In the book of Ephesians, he speaks of, often of heavenly realms as a place of spiritual authority and, interestingly, spiritual conflict. Paul said that uh, God raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul very clearly said, we do not need to fear death, for we know that if our earthly house, our tabernacle be dissolved, that's us, our body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So was heaven for real for Paul? Absolutely. And he once mentions in, a, in 2 Corinthians an experience of heaven. He has this kind of out-of-body experience where he says, I went to the third heaven, which is much argued about what he means that. But yes, he had an experience of heaven. But as you read through Paul's letters, you will see time and time again that the characteristic hope of Paul is not escape from this earth. The characteristic hope for Paul was resurrection. Paul, again and again and again, points to his hope for resurrection. He says in Philippians, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead for himself. And his hope of the resurrection was not just for him, but for the whole creation. For his creation, he said, for the creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers until now. Not only this, but we ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly as we await for our adoption and the redemption of our bodies. This is not a disembodied, and I'm getting out of here, spiritual hope. This is the hope of the resurrection of our physical bodies, an earthly hope. 
But you say, well, maybe that's just Paul. I mean, Paul was a first century Jew. He was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. So maybe he's just laying that expectation over the story of Jesus. Maybe he's got that wrong. So what about Jesus? What about Jesus? What did Jesus teach about heaven? And if you're sitting there thinking, oh, great, I came to church this morning, and the pastor told me there's no heaven or I'm not going to heaven, just hang on. It's not what I'm saying. Jesus absolutely spoke of heaven as a reality, as he, somewhat more disturbingly, also spoke about hell as a reality. An awful lot of our teaching about hell and heaven comes from Jesus. At Jesus' baptism, we recorded, he recorded, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus warned us that whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus made it very clear that those who die in him need not fear death, but will be with him. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me as well. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you? I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and welcome you into my presence so that you also may be where I am. But, again, when you read through Jesus' characteristic message, his characteristic message was not about escape from this earth to heaven. It was about heaven coming to earth. Jesus spoke about heaven 140 times, and nearly all of those were about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. Jesus' extraordinary claim was that in himself, heaven had already broken into the earth, and the end of the story that we are hoping for had already begun. He backed up that claim by going to the cross and rising from the dead. And in his resurrection life, we have a glimpse, I think, of what the future is. In his resurrection, he is physical, he's not a ghost, he eats fish. He bears the wounds of his resurrection in his body, so there is some sense of continuity, and yet somehow he doesn't seem constrained by the material world. There's an otherness, there's a discontinuity. There's continuity and discontinuity. Now you might say, Matt, that's all very interesting. That's very good. It's very theologically fascinating, but what possible difference does that really make to me? What possible difference does it make to the mission of the church? And I think the answer is it makes all the difference in the world. How you see the end and what you hope for will change fundamentally how you try to work out your mission. A little while ago at Truro, we had a man called Don Ebbets come to visit us. Don Ebbets is a man who sort of researches and looks at evangelism. Evangelism sits at the heart of mission, and he told this story. He told the story of one time when he got on a 15-hour bus journey. And here's a man who spends his life thinking about mission and evangelism. And he sits down, and he sits down next to this girl, and he's reading a book about mission and evangelism. Thirteen and a half hours into the journey, he realizes he hasn't even introduced himself to his neighbor. 
And he thinks, that's a bit curious, isn't it? Here I am, someone thinking about mission and evangelism, and it's taken me 13 and a half hours to even introduce myself to my neighbor on the bus. So he sums up his courage, and he admits that he's actually an introvert, and so he finds it's quite difficult. But he says, hi, and she says, hi, after 13 and a half hours. And so he says, well, where are you going? And she starts to tell her story, and after a while, it turns out her story is that she's just running away, basically. She's leaving her hometown because she got into the drug scene. She got into the drug scene, and it got really, really bad. It got so bad that in the end, she thought, the only real possibility for me is to get away from it, and that's not a bad thing to do. So she was going. She was running. She was trying to escape. And I wondered at that point, Don, our hero, our Christian hero, what story, if he was going to talk about evangelism or the mission or whatever, what story would he tell that girl? What hope would he offer her? Would he basically offer her a better escape than the one she was trying? Would she basically say to her, look, you betrayed drugs, now you're trying running away. I've got a better hope, a better escape for you. It's called heaven. And if you will just believe in Jesus Christ, one day you will go to heaven and everything will be okay. At which point she might turn to him and say, well, it sounds like you and I are very alike, really. We're both looking for a way out. Maybe your way is better than mine. But if you're right, wouldn't it be better for me to die today and just get out of this mess? Wouldn't that be the best option? Would be that be the story he told her? Or would he tell her a story of a God who was so committed to his creation, so committed like a faithful husband to an unfaithful wife, that God would never, ever give up on his creation? that he would go to any lengths to restore her to her former beauty, even to the extent of going to the cross and dying on it for the sake of his creation. That the hope of renewal and restoration and even rebirth was not some far-off dream that this girl could hope to experience one day but it had already broken into the world in Jesus Christ, and she, the girl on the bus, could begin to experience that kind of life today, even now. That she could expect to experience healing, restoration, the reparation of relationships, joy through the work of the Spirit. That the hope of heaven is a hope that has already broken into the world and that she could know that hope in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? What you hope for will change the way you do your mission. And let's just finish with this by going back to the beginning of the story. Which version of the story makes most sense of the beginning? A story which is ultimately about escape and discarding that old blue globe 
finishing with it. Let's be done with that. Or a story that actually points back to a God who said when He created it, it was good. That made mankind in His image, in His likeness, so that they might rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. That makes sense that God created us in His image for a purpose. A story that makes sense of God's unbelievable patience with humanity. His mercy time and time again bringing His people back to Him. That when Jesus hung on a cross between two thieves, one of whom mocked Jesus and the other said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today, not in a thousand years or ten thousand years, today you will be with me in paradise. And that we have an image in the Scriptures of paradise. It is Eden. It is Adam walking in the garden with God. God is fully present. And the earth was filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is that our hope? Is that your hope? Do you look at the world and see its potential? Do you see it as a couple of old chairs that need to be thrown out? Or do you see it as something that needs to be restored, brought back to its intentional purpose, the original purpose? Beauty brought back into the earth. Is that how you see it? You know, my wife reminded me of a song you know this song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? Look full in His wonderful face. Do you remember the next line? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the lights of His glory and grace. And I know that's a song about suffering and about how suffering will pass away. But I thought, in a way, that's wrong. <laughs> that as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, as we look full in His wonderful face, really, the earth should start to get brighter. We should start to see humanity as it could be. We should start to see beauty where we can. We should start to see the possibility of restoration. Will you start to long for that kind of hope? People will read it in you. They will know, like my Jewish friend, what kind of hope we really carry in ourselves. They will know whether we're really just longing to get out of here or whether we see what God sees, the possibility for a recreation. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, as we talk and thought about hope this morning, I know that there will be some people here who feel like they've lost hope, or they're uncertain of what to hope for. So, Father, I pray that whatever we carry out of here, and as we go forward and as we take communion together, that great sign of the marriage of heaven and earth, that you would sow a seed of hope in each of our hearts so that we could carry that into the world. Lord Jesus, 
Help us to know the end that we should hope for. Let it inform our lives for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.